Let's take our Bibles then and turn together to the book of Hebrews. It's on page 1004 if you're using the church Bible. Book of Hebrews, chapter 6. We're going to pick it up at verse 11. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. We had a break over the summer when we studied Jonah, and now we're back to basics. The author writes this, We desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. But when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. With your Bibles open, just want you to notice the last words of this little section here and the last words of verse 10 of chapter 5, where the author has introduced the subject designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And now he picks it up again in verse 20. And next week, God willing, we'll actually discover something about this guy, Mel. But in the meantime, what this little passage we're looking at today does, it serves as a kind of on-ramp leading back onto the main highway, signaled by Mel's name there, as it appears at the end of this little section, and then as we proceed into the next chapter and so on. We've taken a kind of detour, or you haven't because some of you weren't here when we were taking the detour, but we did. We took a detour, detail, uh, detour rather, round about verse 11 of chapter 5. The author has been teaching them something about the superiority of Jesus Christ over angels, over Moses, the great figure of Judaism, and over the, the whole system of religion, the priesthood, and so on. And uh, he's paused to get off the main road and to go into some back alleys because he's worried, concerned about the people that he's writing to in verse 11. 
he recognizes that there is among these Hebrew believers some hesitation. They're just not quite sure of things. They've gotten a bit stuck spiritually. They're not growing as they should and, in fact, are in danger of not even going at all. Not, not only that, but he's afraid that they might start to retrogress, retrogress, go backwards rather than forwards. And so he's issued a warning to them, a serious warning. You can read it for yourself against abandoning the Christian way. But having issued the warning now, he now calls on them in this little section we've read to refocus. He thinks that what we, they need is to refocus and to move forward, and he wants to give them encouragement to do that. And it's with this in mind then that we read those words in verse 11. What is it he wants? Well, he wants each of them, each one of you, to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope till the end. Not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. He's going to be talking about one of those people. And what he wants from us, what he wants from his readers and therefore from us, is that he wants our lives to be characterized by these two things, faith and patience. There's an old song that says, love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and… You know, you don't know the song? Like a horse and carriage? No? Okay. Uh, you're not really all that bright. But anyway, <laughs> if love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage, faith and patience go together like a horse and carriage. These are the two things that describe both the beginning, continuance, and end of what it means to be a Christian. So when he says there, we want you to be imitators of those who display these things, faith and patience so that you might inherit, as they did, the promises that God has made to you. The Christian life is a journey. It begins in faith, and it goes on in patience. Faith rests on things that are invisible. Patience waits for things that are still future. Faith receives and rests upon the promises of God that find their fulfillment, their point in Jesus Christ. Patience overcomes obstacles, rests on the promises, endures trials, waits as long as it takes to enter into the joy of the things promised. Faith rests alone on Christ for salvation and eternal life. Patience marks the Christian life going forward. Patience involves movement towards a goal or an end. Sometimes in the Bible, Jesus is called the, the A and the Z, the Alpha and the Omega in Greek, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the Alpha, He is the Omega, He is the beginning and the end. Faith rests on Christ as the beginning, and patience displays itself by enduring hope directed towards the omega point or the omega point where 
everything that was given to us in Christ arrives at its perfection and its fullness, fullness of blessedness, happiness in God and in God's glory forever. That's where the Christian life is going. And in order for us to continue then with faith and patience, the author provides us with three encouragements. He points us, first of all, to God, the promiser. Verse 13, God made a promise to Abraham. He begins with Abraham because Abraham is the father not only of all the Semite nations, but he's the father of those who believe. He is the quintessential believer. He is the one who exhibits what it is to believe God and to have faith. And he wants us, he wants us to show the same earnestness as Abraham, to have the same, the full assurance of hope that Abraham kept to the end. He wants us to imitate the faith and patience of Abraham so that like him, we might inherit the promises. That's how these verses fit together. Now, that story of Abraham, of course, is one that's known to Christian people. You may not know the story, and so I summarize for you. He was a tribal chief. He lived about 2,000 years before Jesus. He was a pagan man. He did not believe in the God of the Bible. When he started out, he worshiped idols. He came from a rather sophisticated for its time place called Ur of the Chaldees. The, the archaeologists have uncovered Ur, found that there was a kind of primitive central heating system in the whole of the Ur area, region of the, the, the city there. And he, he was a well, very wealthy man. Uh, he was probably one of the wealthiest men of his time. And God made promises to Abraham. These were divine promises. Divine promises are expressed declarations of the grace, the goodness, the pleasure, and the purpose of God towards His people for their good and their advantage. Our good and our advantage. These promises of God come to us. God came to Abraham. You can read about it, Genesis 12. And He said to Abraham, I want you to go out from your country and from your kindred and your family's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and make your name great. So Abraham went. That's where it all began for him. Out he goes. He doesn't know where he's going. He goes out in faith. God doesn't give him a Garmin or an iPhone with uh, Google Maps to show him the way. He tells him simply to go to the land that he will show him. So out he goes. Without having a printout or any other means of knowing the directions he's to take, he follows God's guidance till he gets to the place where God is leading him. He believes God. And he believes God's promise that God will give him a family. He has to have a family because apparently he's going to have be made into a great nation. Well, to become a great nation, you have to have children. And, and he goes to the place, the land that God tells him, settles down there. He's there for 10 years. 
but still no, no children, no sign of them. And so God comes to him again. It's recorded in Genesis 15. God says to him, I am your shield and I am your very great reward. A son coming from your own body will be your heir. There's God's repeating the promise to him. Unlikely though it seemed, and God is saying that he himself, God is his very great reward. And then he takes Abram outside and he says, Abram, I want you to look at the stars and the sky. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And we're told that Abraham believed the Lord. God said it. Abraham believed it. And it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. And then God came to him again in chapter 17 of Genesis, gave him a sign and a seal, circumcision, which was of an outward visible sign that he put on his children, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren, and down through the successive years, a sign of the promise of God that through the singular offspring of Abraham, this singular seed, this singular male child who was to come into the world, all the families of the world would be blessed. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise Peter is mentioning there in Acts chapter 2 when he says to the people gathered listening to his sermon, the promise is for you and your children and to all whom the Lord your God will call to himself. It's the promise of salvation. It's the promise that God will continue to work in families and will work in families right across the world, drawing people to himself. And God seals it himself in a very remarkable way there in Genesis 17. As Abraham offers a sacrifice, carves the sacrifice up, normally in a, in a covenant arrangement like this, uh, the two parties who are making the covenant will walk through the the, the animals together in the kind of figure eight movement as a sign that if one or other of them breaks their word, so they'll be torn apart, just like the animals torn apart. In this case, God does it himself, as if to say to Abraham, this is my covenant. I'm making the promise. It's all me. I'm responsible. If I break my word to you, let, I, let me cease to be. Well, the dream baby arrives, grows up to be a young man. His name is Isaac. And God comes to Abraham one day and says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. I can't imagine the sheer terror that must have been for Abraham, nor can I understand for one moment the faith that moved him to act or that enabled him to be able to say to those who went with them as Isaac and Abraham left those who were his, their companions and said to them, we, the, the lad and I, are going yonder in order that we might worship. And when we have worshiped, we, we will come back to you. The New Testament tells us that at that moment, Abraham believed that God was able to raise 
the dead. And so with Isaac's help, they build the altar with Isaac's help. They gather the wood with Isaac's help. Abraham ties him up with Isaac's help. Isaac climbs onto the altar. There's no way Abraham would have carried a 19-year-old boy and placed him in the altar. And just as the knife is about to plunge, God provides the lamb. It's an amazing thing. In the New Testament, it says this, that the God who spared Abraham's son did not spare his only son. God would provide a lamb. That's what Abraham said to Isaac. When Isaac said, where is the lamb, dad? Abraham said, God will provide the lamb. And ultimately, of course, the lamb of God was the son of God who became the sacrifice for our sins. He took our place Just as that lamb took Isaac's place, he took our place, and bearing our sin, he died our death in order that we might never die eternally. And it was then that an angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you and greatly multiply your seed as the stars in the heavens. God swears by His promise. And Abraham believed God. And in spite of trials, in spite of temptations, in spite of the occasional failure, he patiently waited for it to be fulfilled. And the text says he obtained the promise, by installments, until ultimately that singular seed was born, son of Abraham, son of David, son of God, the Savior of the world. God is the promiser, the God who provided a substitute for Isaac, the God who brought Isaac back from the dead and who brought Jesus back from real death. He is the one who's made the promises of eternal blessedness and happiness and perfection to you this morning. God Himself is the promiser. Secondly, God Himself is the guarantor. There's a whole lot of legal language involved here. Did you notice it? a whole series of, of uh, ideas of uh, making an oath, of, of, uh, of, a, of a deal, of a, of, a, of a legal character taking place in, in this story, uh, God not being able to lie, and so forth. We take oaths sometimes in court. It used to be you put your hand on the Bible. You raised your right hand or whatever it was, and you said, I, I swear to Almighty God, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why did you do that? Well, you did that to to emphasize that you had a sense of a higher authority that you were answerable to. Now, of course, it's the law, in a sense, we swear to, because it's the law with all its weight that can come crashing down upon you you if you break your word in court. 
Well, swearing is not a bad thing in that sense. The only thing the Bible says about swearing is that you shouldn't need to do it. Your word should be your bond. You don't need to swear by heaven and earth or anything else that you're going to do something. If you've promised to do it, that should be enough. It also warns us against making an oath and then breaking the oath. But by and large, the Bible is pretty positive about, about oaths. And here God sets the tone. Here is God Himself. When God made a promise to Abraham, it says, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. There are three assumptions here, that God is eternal, that is, that he is ever present to fulfill what he's promised, that God is omnipotent, that he has power to do what he promises, and that God is unchangeable. Look at what it says when God desired to show more convincingly. For whom? Well, for us, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of His purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. Now, let's unpick these words. The promise is the promise of salvation. The purpose or the will or the decree of God is God's eternal willing of our salvation, His deciding to save us, His intention to save us, His purpose, His decree of which the promise is what He tells you, but He's already established it. He will do this. And who is this promise and purpose for? Well, it's for those who have fled for refuge to Him, People have been fleeing for refuge from this hurricane in Florida, as they should do. Twenty-two million people were told to flee for refuge by their governor. Well, we believers are people who are fleeing from a greater force than any storm. The wrath of God, we're told to flee it. Where are we to run from God? We are to run from God to God. The name of the Lord is as a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. We run from judgment to the judge. We run from the wrath to come to the love of God, and we hide ourselves in Him. And not only that, we are the heirs of the promise, the ones to whom the promise is made, those who are Believers as Abraham believed, believing in the same Christ in which Abraham believed. So, what we learn then from this book so far is this that the will of God remains forever. That's found in two places, Psalm 32 and Proverbs 19. And whether it's the language of God speaking, chapter 1, witnessing, chapter 2, calling, chapter 3, or this language here of promising, swearing, willing, All of that language tells you that God, the God on account of whom and through whom all things exist, we were told in chapter 2, this God is engaged actively, powerfully, personally with you as a human being, with you as a believer. And here's what Numbers tells us, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should change His mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not 
fulfill. God is unchangeable in his being, in his feelings, in his decisions, in his actions, in every conceivable way that he is God, he is unchangeable. And when he swears by his holiness, as in Psalm 89, or by his right hand and strong arm, Isaiah 62, or his great name, Jeremiah 44, or by his excellency, Amos 9, whenever he swears by any of these properties, it is the same as it says here, he is swearing by himself. As John Owen says, all the properties of God are the same as his nature and his being. He doesn't swear by anything outside of himself or extraneous to himself. He swears by himself. And why does he go to all this trouble? Well, he's coming down to our level, you see. He is stooping down to our level. He wants us to be reassured. He wants to assure us that the promises he's made, he will keep. He wants to keep us as believers, feeling that all the promises God has made are stable. They are not going to be swept away in a hurricane of unforeseen circumstances. They are stable promises. He wants us to be convinced of the inviolability of His promises. Notice that phrase, the unchangeableness of His purpose. That our hope of glory, our hope of eternal perfection and blessedness, our hope one day of being with Christ, which is by far the best, is based on two unchangeable things. Verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to lie. His promise and His oath. You see, the writer is not wanting us to keep going in this Christian life on the basis of our own faith or our own buoyant nature or otherwise. He wants us to go forward in faith building our lives on the promise of God and on the nature and character of God, the unchangeable and unchanged God. God is the promiser, and God is the guarantee, and thirdly, God is the anchor. God is the anchor. He shifts metaphors here. He says, this hope we have as an anchor to the soul. This hope summarizes the hope that's held out to us in the promise of God and guaranteed by His oath. This hope, this hope of eternal blessedness, this hope of eternal life, this hope of eternal uh, joy and happiness, this hope of an eternal, uh, of a resurrection body and a renovated universe, this hope is ours and it is sure and steadfast. Look how he puts it, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A sure and steadfast anchor. When sailors are at sea, they cast the anchor, the anchor that goes out of eyeshot, down beneath the waters, unseen, but which grips on to the bottom, hidden and invisible, yet holds their boats secure. And he's saying, we have this 
promised hope, this hope promised by the Word of God and guaranteed by the oath of God, it is like an anchor cast into the unseen world, not deep down in the water, but up high in heaven, right into the very presence of God. And he switches metaphors. Bible writers do all the time because they're, they're ransacking language and metaphor to try and paint the picture for us. The anchor is cast in the eternal, heavenly temple. And not just anywhere in that heavenly, eternal temple of which the earthly temple was only ever a model and foreshadowing, but right into the inner sanctuary right into the throne room of the heavenly temple, right into the place where God's presence is bristling with life and reality and vitality, right in there. And what is this anchor? Well, he tells us. He tells us it goes behind the veil, behind the curtain, cast in heaven itself. where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. He uses the human name. The writer of Hebrews is very clear. When he wants to focus us on the humanity of Christ, he focuses on Jesus' humanity. He came to be a human high priest. He came to be a human like us. He obeyed God as a human and did what we failed to do. When He went to the cross, He died as a human. He took our punishment as a human being. When God raised Him from the dead, He rose in His humanity, was transformed, resurrected in His humanity as we shall be. We shall have bodies like His risen, glorified body. And this Jesus, He says, has entered as a forerunner. He's gone ahead of us. Got to get things ready for us. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and take you to be with me where I am. He is our forerunner. He's getting all the party arranged for us. The best wine, the best food, the best ambience. It's all going to be put together for us. A resurrection body suited just for you to capture the quintessence of who you are as a person so that anybody who knew you here will know you there. Only you'll look like a god or a goddess there. Not that you don't look like that here. In someone's eyes you do. But you will be there. Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. He is our anchor. God is our anchor. God in Christ is our anchor. And we are going where He has gone. He is our forerunner. He's pioneered the way via death resurrection, glorification in the presence of God. He has gone 
before us, and we will follow Him. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while all the billows roll, fastened to the rock that cannot move, found its firm and deep in the Savior's love. We have an anchor, brothers and sisters. God is the promiser. God is the guarantor. God is the anchor of our hopes. Everything we are, we are risking all on in our lives as believers. As we go out in faith and as we wait patiently throughout this, our earthly life and pilgrimage, waiting for the dawning of that bright and glorious day when the Lord will come from heaven, when the heavens will split apart and Jesus will be revealed, for that glorious day when we are made like Him, as we wait patiently, we have the promise of God, we have the guarantee of God, we have the anchor in heaven itself, our forerunner, Jesus. What the author is saying is, I want you to imitate Abraham. Abraham saw Jesus' day from a distance, but he believed in it. Jesus has already come. You're in a better position than Abraham was. Learn from Abraham faith and patience. Believe God and patiently wait for the outcome of your faith, which has been promised and guaranteed and attained by God through Christ for you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would uh, this morning encourage our hearts to throw all that we are on all that Jesus Christ our Lord is for us. Thank you that He's already in that heavenly holy of holies, already in His humanity in the presence of the Father. And where He is, we, His children, His people, united to Him by faith, are going to. Would you help us, Lord, in this journey to keep our eyes on Him? And would you encourage our hearts, we pray, with the promises of God. We ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.